Right now we're in Luke chapter 3. Turn there if you would please and thank you for being a part of the service today. I'm so grateful to be with you. I've been taking a few uh, weeks and going through the book of Luke. And come to Luke chapter number 3 now this morning. And it's, we get introduced to John the Baptist primarily. Remember Luke, he is a, a physician by trade, Greek, writing to the, the world at large. And uh, he de definitely includes the Gentiles many times in the book of Luke. He is trying to get their attention and let them know that the Savior that has come is not just a Savior for the Jewish people, he's a Savior for all that live on the face of the earth. And he's making sure that he does travel with the with Apostle Paul, and at least spends the last four or five years of his life while he's in prison in Caesarea, and also in Rome, takes the long, arduous uh, shipwreck through uh, the the waters there that they that in lens on the island of Malta with them, and he spends his time taking care of him. It looks like he was financed by a man named Theophilus, a wealthy man, possibly in the Roman government, who loved the Apostle Paul, wanted him to have some care, and financed Luke to be his personal physician and caretaker, but he also was used of God to research. And he tells us from Luke chapter 1 that he interviewed many eyewitnesses. He talked to many of the apostles. He was familiar with many of the things. And when he had a perfect or complete understanding of all things from the beginning, he set out to write this letter. And uh, Theophilus, the lover of God, would be the recipient of the letter. But thank God it was included in the, in the canon of scriptures and we get to read it. And uh, Luke is responsible for at least two books of our Bible, and that is the book of Luke and the book of Acts, two of the longest books in our New Testament, full of, of, uh, of specifics, uh, full of historical facts and things that he had definitely gathered in his heart to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of God. I'm glad we have these two books in our Bible for sure. Well, now when we left off in chapter 2, we find the Lord Jesus Christ was 12 years old. And uh, his mother and father had gone to Jerusalem to worship. They came every year at the, at the Passover. Jewish men were required to come three times a year at the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, and also for, uh, for the uh, Pentecost. But he, Joseph brought Mary and his kids down and their children down there once a year at Passover. They may, there must have been a large group came down from Galilee. It was about a 90-mile trip from where they lived in Nazareth down to Jerusalem. And they came in probably large groups to protect themselves and travel with young children. So a lot of folks came together at the same time. And when they did, they headed out to go back home and realized that Jesus was not with them. They had lost Jesus. I think that happens sometimes in our life. We get caught up in the hustle and bustle of things and we lose uh, Jesus. Now, not for eternal purposes, but for our walk with him. And they realized he wasn't there. And by the way, that's a costly thing when you step away from the Lord Jesus Christ. When you miss him in your presence, very costly. And it cost them three days of trying to find him. And in exasperation, they did find him. Mary and Joseph found him in the temple, talking with the lawyers and the, the theologians of the day and asking them questions, and everybody was amazed, and Mary was frustrated. So why would you do this to me and your father? Good night, we have saw you diligently. And he says something, what we would seem to be a little bit uh, maybe sarcastic, but he said, he said, wouldn't you know that I'd be about my father's business? You wouldn't look for me on the soccer fields. You wouldn't look at me over at the video arcade. <laughs> no, I would be where, where I could learn more about my father and be interacting with my father's business. Why did you take so long to get here to the temple? This is where my heart is. At 12 years old, he obviously had a heart for God. Do you have that heart? 
I'm 55. I want to have a heart for God. I want it to grow more fervently and fervently, especially as we embark upon the new year. But uh, they came and found him. And the Bible says as they went their way home with Mary and Joseph, and they, made, they had other children younger than them. I don't know if the other family members took them back up to Nazareth and they went back on their own. The Bible doesn't tell us. But as they made their way back home, the Bible just says this about Jesus, that he was subject to his mom and dad. He was, he was submissive to them. Boy, all of us have a little bit of a, a rebelliousness about us. We don't want to do things the way that our authorities, God and our authorities, want us to do some things. But we find that Jesus was the perfect God-man, and he was subject. Is there anybody that you're supposed to be submissive to that you're not? Is there someone in your life, God, number one? Are there others that God's put in your life that you're having a, an issue with that? I had someone tell me this week, and they're a precious person, being honest. They said, you know what? I'm not a submissive person. It's my sin. I'm not submissive. And I know it's hurting my relationship. It's hurting my children. It's hurting my walk with the Lord. And by the way, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. I don't know about you, but wherever witchcraft is, I'm going to be somewhere else. I am not interested in Ouija boards. I'm not interested in any kind of a, anything that has anything to do with satanic work. I want to be somewhere else. I'm not interested in Harry, Henry, Harry Potter. I went to Chicago this week and took my mother-in-law down to, to, see, uh, to see downtown Chicago. And there was a, a, a line wrapped around all to do something with little Henry, Harry Potter. I want to get away from that line as fast as I can. I'm not interested in that. Not, not one little bit. Anything that, is, that it has to do with the mystical and the satanic world, I want to be as far away from that as possible. And I also want to be far away from rebellion. <laughs> I want to be a submissive person. It's not in me. The Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And I've had that in me for 55 years. Uh, pushing against things I need to submit to. But the Bible says that's what Jesus did. And he grew physically in stature. And he grew in wisdom and intellectual abilities and academia. And then he grew in, in favor with God spiritually. And he grew in favor with man. But now the pages have turned. From chapter 2, he's 12 years old. 18 years have gone by now. And the Lord, through his wisdom and his providence and his, his uh, wisdom, doesn't tell us what happened those 18 years. But Luke introduces us to who now is the world leader. When Jesus was born, it was Caesar Augustus. Now it's Tiberius, his stepson. He's in charge. He would be in charge from A.D. 14 to A.D. 37. And there's a, there's a new boss in town. His name is Pilate. Pilate's job, he's the governor over Judea. He's the Roman, uh, the Roman extension to the area of Judea. There are three tetrarchs that are named here, Philip and Herod. Herod, the one that killed the babies or tried to kill the babies. It's his, his two boys are in charge of part of that region. And you can tell that Israel is divided up now into these ages. And the Jewish people can't stand the federal government of, of, Roman, of the Roman Empire. They're, they're, over, they're, they're looking for some freedom. They've gone long years without hearing from God. They haven't heard 400 years since the last prophet spoke and recorded the scriptures. Yes, they had the, they had the, uh, the Christ child come 30 years ago, but it got a little bit of a splash. But everyone who just talked about it was two senior citizens, Simeon and, and Anna, and then a bunch of poor shepherds running around the city telling people that there's a Christ that's alive now, and he's back, and the Christ child's here, and the Messiah's alive. But that kind of waned. Now Jesus has been in hiding somewhat. He has been in a carpenter shop 
working with wood, but he didn't come to the world to work with wood. No, he came to give his life a ransom for many. But he finds himself busy doing the mundane. By the way, some of us struggle with the mundane. We want things, we want things to happen quick. And, but you'll see something, usually before God uses someone, he puts them in a place of, of stagnancy or a place of hiding. We see that with Elijah when he told, uh, told um, Ahab, it's not going to rain, do I say so? And he probably said, what's my next assignment? That was a lot of fun. I got to preach that message hard. Your next assignment is to go sit by a brook and wait. And he waited day after day till that brook dried up. Oh, what's the next thing? Go to the backyard of a widow and she's going to take care of you. What? This is not what prophets do. Imagine David going to be a king and he found himself a shepherd again. He found himself being chased like an animal by Saul. Before he could be on the throne, there needed to be some things God had to do inside of him. We find that through even John the Baptist, who will be introduced to momentarily in the scriptures. And then there are two high priests. Uh, by this time, the, the, the high priests of God are corrupted. They're, they're definitely Pharisees of Pharisees. They're hypocrites. They're just pawns on, Roman, on the Roman Empire's board, if you will, and they're just liaisons to get things done through the Jewish people. They're paid off, they're wealthy. And the two guys that would be there is Annas, he's the oldest one, and then his son Caiaphas. They were there when Jesus died on the cross. They would be there in Acts chapter 4 and verse number 16 whenever, uh, whenever, the, the children, whenever the disciples will be called in into question and put into jail. Annas seems to be the, the main high priest, but Caiaphas, his son, has been given somewhat of equal uh, authority. And Luke takes us now into 18 years in advance and tells us who's in charge. We got a, we got a world leader, Tiberius. We've got a, a local leader, uh, Pilate, we've got two, three tetriarchs, and we've got two high priests that oversee and sets the time frame of where we are. Let's look if we can, please, for the sake of time. Look at verse number two. And Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priest, the word of the Lord came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. If you remember, the Bible tells us, if you would please, that he, that, that John was now, he was in the wilderness until the time of his, of his revealing. So remember, John. His dad was Zacharias. His mother's name was Elizabeth. They had him as a senior citizen themselves. And, of course, Elizabeth and Mary were related. They were from two different tribes, one from Levi, one from, from Judah. But they were related somehow as cousins or in, in, by marriage. But they had babies six months apart. And uh, John's job from the time that he was born was to lay out a, a, a place and let people be aware of a king is coming. Of course, in that time of day, and even if you, we had the president coming to Hammond, Indiana, there would be a lot of preparatory work for him to come. He doesn't just fly in and fly into the airport at O'Hare without any kind of preparation. When a king comes from another, another uh, uh, kingdom of the world, whatever they usually have, things that happen ahead of time, people come ahead and they plan this. They say, here's going to happen here. We got security here. This is the where he's going to walk. Here's where he's going to go. And the same was true as a king in that day. And so a king was coming, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He wouldn't be the king they thought he would be, but he did have um, a predecessor. He had someone coming to prepare the way, and that was John the Baptist. It was his job to do what Isaiah chapter 40 said, make plain the paths 
to smooth out hard ways and to make things clean so that he could come and be introduced to the world. And that was his job. And the Bible says that the word of the Lord came upon John and he gave him a message to share with the world. Let's look at verse number three. Can we please? The Bible says, and he came unto all the country round about Jordan or about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. By the way, if, you would, uh, if you're in a, in, a, in a student of the Bible, you might want to underline for there and put out beside it because of. Uh, let me just tell you, there are folks who believe that you have to get baptized to go to heaven for your sins to be forgiven. That's not true. And sometimes they'll use a verse like this be, be, and, uh, for the, to be baptized for, but it's because of your remission of sin. Because you get baptized because you're saved, not to be saved. Baptism is not, uh, it's not uh, uh, something needed for salvation. It's a symbol of salvation. It's a picture. It's not for the payment of sins. It's a picture that you did get saved. So uh, it's kind of like a wedding band on our hand. We, uh, a wedding band doesn't make me married. If I take the wedding band off, put it on this uh, pulpit, I am still married to my wife, Linda. Because the ring doesn't make me married. The vow made me married. And the ring just tells people that see a, a symbol that I have sometime in my life made a vow and accepted a vow. And, you know, that's what baptism this morning, if we have people get baptized, as we did last week, uh, they will just be saying, I've already accepted Christ, and now I want you to know that I'm not ashamed of him. By the way, everybody who's saved ought to get baptized, and I would suggest you don't delay. Delayed obedience is disobedience. When you know you're supposed to do something, do it. You'll be, you'll be glad you did. It's what God wants you to do. And it doesn't, it doesn't make you a member of this church. It does tell others that you're not ashamed of Jesus, that you've accepted his gift to eternal life. He's accepted your sin, and you're not ashamed of him. And it's, it's something that's important to God. It, you say, well, it's not important to me. Well, you don't know how important it is to God. If you knew it was important to God, you would want to obey the Lord in that area. Well, John, he was called John the Baptist, but he was baptizing people unto repentance. Jesus would baptize people uh, at, at regeneration. They would get saved. He had a different, different because they had been saved. These folks, he was telling them, the Messiah is alive. And just to remind you, John was the voice in the wilderness. Jesus is the word. John baptized to repentance. Jesus baptized after regeneration. We find that, that uh, John, he had, the, uh, he had the spirit in, in, of Elijah. Jesus had the spirit of Jehovah. A total different things. Jesus was the, the savior of the world. John was a sinner born of a man. So we, we find that is, but we also see that God has a specific plan for John. And so he begins to preach out by the River Jordan in the wilderness. He comes out, and I'm sure at the first message, there weren't too many people who listened to him. He dressed differently. The Bible said he had camel's hair. He, is, he was a Nazarite, so he, as a sign of embarrassment, he had long hair. And people asked, what's he doing that? Because I'm a Nazarite, I'm devoted unto God. It was a shame unto him, but it was one that pointed him to the fact that he had committed to the Lord. He would not drink wine or strong drink. The Bible tells us about that. It was definitely separated. And, and he had been, he had been seg, uh, in solitary for many years. Now he comes out. Probably the group is small initially as he preaches. But man, this guy is purposeful. He's powerful. And he's very provocative in his message. He is not someone that can be ignored. And as time goes on, more people become to hear John. 
They become to hear him, and he is not mincing his words. He has words for Annas, and he has words for Caiaphas. He has words for Herod, his local tetrarch, who has stolen his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, and, and now has, she has moved in with him. He doesn't mince his words. He says, that's, that's wicked. That's wrong. I'm not going to put up with that. That's, that's, things, that's a sin against God. So he's, he's somebody who doesn't, uh, he doesn't mess around with the truth. But he's preaching. And if people believe that the Messiah was coming and they had said, you know what, we're ready to repent. Now, repentance is very important. Now, there are some folks, I think, who muddy the water some. But no one gets saved until there's repentance. A recognition of what? Of sin, of Jesus, and a judgment to come. I've had the joy to witness to many people. And I want to encourage you, when you witness to someone, give them a chance to make sure they understand what you're telling them. Occasionally, people rush people through the gospel message, and they don't even let them get a question in edgewise. They just, yeah, 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 boom, pray, boom, wonderful. And they don't even remember their name when they leave them. That's not, that's not proper soul winning, in my opinion. I think people, when they get to, when you're giving someone the gospel, it's the most important information in the world, and it deserves time. It deserves clarity. It deserves the Spirit of God to have time to bring conviction of sin and of righteousness and judgment. I don't think you have to have someone repent and beat themselves and say, I'm a terrible person. I do think repentance is understanding. It's a recognition and a change of mind and thought and direction. I think that's the case. Now, you can't, just, you can't discern that about every person, but I do believe that when the Spirit of God comes, there's three things that God does to bring people to Christ. He, I think, number one, He does it through the local church. I think everyone who gets saved gets saved directly or indirectly because the local church did its job. It's the pillar and ground of the truth. If you're saved this morning, it's because somewhere, somehow, a local church obeyed the Bible. They love the Bible. Someone gave, someone prayed, someone got a gospel tract, someone got a bus route, someone got a Sunday school class, someone purchased a building, someone did their job right. But the other two things, that's, that's the, the vehicle, but the necessary ingredients for salvation is the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God and hearing the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Then the Holy Spirit must bring conviction of three things of our sin, of righteousness in Jesus Christ, and of judgment to come. Those are things that the Spirit of God does. I cannot bring conviction to you, and you cannot bring conviction to me or anyone else. The Spirit of God must do that, but He does that as a local church does its job, as the Word of God is shared, faith is fostered, and the Spirit of God brings conviction of sin. And I believe that happened under the preaching of John the Baptist. He challenged people, and he told them, he said, look, you guys got to get this right. We got we got, we got the Messiah is alive and get ready for him. And if you're ready for him, then follow the Lord in believer's baptism that you will, you'll, you'll look for him and you'll receive this admonition. Let's continue reading. Can we please? Verse number five. The Bible says that every valley shall be filled. And he's quoting from Isaiah chapter number 40. And every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be smooth. Would you read verse 6 with me? And all flesh shall see. Once again, I love that because Luke is very wise and inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to remind us how many people are supposed to get saved. 
How many people can be saved? All flesh. All flesh could be able to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Luke makes it very clear, quoting our Old Testament passage of Scripture in Isaiah. Isaiah is a great book of the Old Testament. It is 66 chapters, and our Bible is 66 books. And really, the first 39 uh, the 39 books of, the, of Isaiah kind of mirror the Old Testament. And then in chapter 40, you're introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ more so as the coming Messiah and goes on throughout the rest of the book. It's a great chapter. But now he's recording that verse number seven. Then said he to the multitudes that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers. Now he's got a larger crowd, and, and certainly he has some Pharisees in there. He has some folks who are religious zealots, but who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, or rejected the teaching, but he brings them together. He said, oh, generation of vipers, you bunch of snakes. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He points them to the fact that judgment is awaiting. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. And begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, or to say unto you that God is able to, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Let me just say, mention this real quick to you. He's getting very serious. You can, you can just, if you can read just what I just now read, you can tell that he's got their, he's got his long finger in their face. He said, look, you bunch of snakes. He said, you generation of vipers. He said, you better get ready. Judgment is coming. He's going to tell them later that the ax is laid to the root. But some of them said, and there were many of them that were Jewish uh, descent, and they said, you know what? Look, we're the children of Abraham, as though that would give them uh, salvation. By the way, if you think for a moment that you're saved because your parents made you saved, that's a bad decision. You're not so easy. Oh, I'm saved because I was baptized in this church. No, that didn't do anything for you. One of the things I love about being a Baptist is that Bible doctrine is Bi Baptist doctrine is Bible doctrine. And the Bible teaches us in, in individual soul liberty that, that salvation cannot be coerced. It is, it is an individual decision. Your daddy, I love my dad. My dad loved me, but he couldn't make me get saved. That had to be an individual decision I had to make. Say, well, my mom, my dad decided I would be this. Well, let me tell you something. They didn't have that right to make you a child of God. They cannot. And these folks said, you know what? We're the children of Abraham. We're going to be chosen by the Lord. And he said, look, if God wants, he could bring children of Abraham out of rocks. He goes, that doesn't make you a, a believer. You have to individually accept Jesus yourself. You have to receive this yourself. Let's look at the next passage of the scripture, if we can, please. And uh, verse, number, verse number nine, he said, I want you to individually bring forth a, uh, a, a, a fact that you believe. And now he says, and now also is the axe laid into the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. If you're not going to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and accept this king of glory, he said, there'll be, a, there'll be an eternal damnation for you. I like verse 10, and I don't have time to talk about it. We'll do it maybe next week. But let's look at verse 10. Would you read verse 10 with me, everybody? And the people ask him, saying, you know, when you have a message from God being spoken to you in a Sunday school class, your personal Bible reading, or in a church service like this, and God puts his finger on something in your life, one thing you ought to do is exactly what these people did. What should I do? I love this about, about Paul. 
Whenever he found out he was against Jesus, he was against God, he was against Christianity, he was killing people, having them taken to prison, getting them fired from their work, get them, get them to, to, to anything he could do to stop Christianity. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He heard his voice and he said to him, Lord, or he said to him, who art thou, Lord? Who are you? And whenever he heard who he was, he asked another very good question. What do you want me to do? You know, every time you hear the word of God, you ought to ask, Lord, what do you want me to do with that? What do I want to do with that? It's interesting. I want you to read ahead of time. We'll talk about it next week. But each of the answers revolve around finances. Very interesting. You read it ahead of time, you'll see. The general people said, what do you want me to do? And he told them. And then the, uh, the tax collectors, the publicans says, what should we do? And he told them, and he talked about money. That's interesting. The soldiers said, hey, what about us? We're soldiers. And he told them at the end of his, of his admonition, and be content with your wages. It's interesting, oftentimes, whenever God deals with his people, we'll find that in the book of Malachi in chapter 3. Whenever Jesus, God confronts Israel and says, what do you, you're away from me, your, your family, your, your fathers have been away from me. And then they said, okay, well, how can we get back to you? And he says, well, will a man rob God? He said, well, you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. He said, how about this? Let's start off. You want to get back to me? Let's start off with your pocketbook. Let's start off with your finances. Let's start there. And then we can continue talking. Bring your tithes into the storehouse. It's interesting. I don't think it's a, it's a cure-all or a panacea for all life's problems, but you'll never be the Christian God wants you to be until you learn to honor the Lord in your finances. And I can see here whenever this fiery, powerful, purposeful preacher, uh, John the Baptist, he began to tell them some things. He said, uh, they said, what can we do? It's the invitation time. What do you want us to do? And each time he's talked about possessions and finances. I think as we start out a new year, that's just something we're going to talk about. Because it takes men, materials, media, and money for people to hear the gospel. And I think God wants us to deal with this. I think it's not an accident that God put us in this passage of Scripture, and we'll talk more about it next week. 